Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver was released in 1976. Considered one of the greatest films of all time, starring Robert De Niro in his most iconic role as Travis Bickle. Let's break it down. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today, we're going to be discussing one of the greatest films in American history, a personal favorite of mine and James as well, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which I think is one of the greatest mysteries of film history. It's a movie about a cabbie driving around the cities, disillusioned and lonely, and yet it became one of the most complex pieces of fiction put in cinema it's one of the most interesting character pieces still to this day. And it's a movie that somehow just works in every regard as a piece of art and a piece of storytelling. And in a way, it really catapulted Martin Scorsese into the paradigm of American history as a great filmmaker in America. Um, also being a New York filmmaker and telling New York stories, this is different. Uh, it's his only non-gangster movie. <laughs> That's a joke. According to the internet. According to the internet. <laughs> um, I also think that this movie kind of gets a bad rap nowadays as being like this like film bro thing and uh, domestic, domestic terrorism. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot deeper than that, and it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, it's, it, because it tackles very intense themes, very difficult themes, um, and themes that most filmmakers try to stray away from. But I think that Scorsese. He cares about telling authentic stories. He cares about dissecting humanity. And sometimes humanity can be very dark. And this is an example of that. I like how you use the word mystery for this film. That's not really a word used with this movie. But I think that definitely applies to the character of Travis Bickle. And the mystery of what goes on inside of his head. What motivates him. I think that's a very... Uh, relevant word to be used, but I've never yeah. really heard mystery used. It's not like a mystery film, but I think the mystery of the character and the mystique, the mystique, that's really fascinating. And the story, it's something that people, it still puzzles people, and a lot of people maybe who aren't aware, haven't seen it, maybe they just don't understand the film, um, because I think it is, it eludes gra the grasp of um, a lot of people in the modern era uh, when they watch this movie. Maybe they have no idea what's going on other than what's on the surface. You know exactly. what I mean? No, I agree. Now, this came out in 1976. It won the Palme d'Or for Best Picture at the Cannes Film Festival. Even though it was met with booze, it still won. And it, right now is listed at 8.2 in IMDb. User rating, it is the number one one nine hundred nineteenth best film of all time according to the users on IMDb. Obviously directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader, starring Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard, Albert Brooks, as well as Harvey Keitel. It's about a mentally unstable U.S. Marine veteran who works as a nighttime cab driver in New York City where they're perceived Decadence. Hold on, let me. I'm far away from my synopsis. <laughs> Where the I can't read <laughs> the te the text is really small. Where the perceived decadence and sleaze fuels his urge for violent action, and it's one of the best character pieces of all time. Ron Tomatoes has this at 96% critic score, 93% audience score. Again, nominated for four Academy Awards, it did not win any, but it was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Robert De Niro. Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Jodie Foster, who was 12 years old at the time. And then nominee for Best Original Score by Bernard Herrmann. This was the last music he ever produced for film. And actually, 
the day after he recorded the last pieces of music for the film, he passed away. Unfortunately, one of the great tragedies to this film that no one really knows is Bernard Herrmann, the great, one of the best composers of all time, never saw Taxi Driver finished. Yeah, it's a shame. He was the Hans Zimmer of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, essentially. He was writing <laughs> the music for some of the most sensational films of the time. And he even did, uh, Scorsese even used his music for the remake of Cape Fear. Bernard Herrmann bah, 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 bah. he did the original score for the first Cape Fear film and then Scorsese is like why do we need to do different music <laughs> let's just do the same music that's how incredible Bernard Herrmann was also paved the way for modern composing the taxi driver of the film has a 4.2 rating on Letterboxd very good rating with 101,000 reviews so it has a ton of reviews which I'm happy to see it's all so historical like significance is unparalleled it was ranked by the AFI Institute as the 52nd greatest American film of all time. Bickle was voted the 30, 30th greatest villain in a poll by the same organization. Uh, the Village Voice ranked Taxi Driver at number 33 in its top 250 best films of the century list in 1999, based on a poll of critics. Empire also ranked him 18th in its 100 greatest movie characters poll. Uh, and then the film ranks at number 15, number 17 on Empire Magazine's poll. 500 greatest films of all time, but this was in 2008. Oh, it's, it's changed a lot know. since then. I'm not sure that Bickle can top Thor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> time Out Magazine conducted a poll of the 100 greatest movies set in New York City. Taxi Driver topped the list, placing it at number one. That's some pretty uh, hefty company. There's a lot of great New York films, especially that were made in the 70s. Um, Schrader's screenplay for the film was ranked 43rd, great, 43rd greatest script ever written by the WGA. That's really respectful. In contrast, Leonard Malton, the movie critic, gave it a rating of only two stars and called it a gory, cold-blooded story of a sick man's lurid descent into violence. This film was a very polarizing picture at the time. Um, it was difficult for audiences to grasp and really accept what they were seeing on screen. This is something we're used to seeing nowadays, this kind of carnage, this kind of violence, this kind of blood and gore. But back then, it was still pushing the envelope, and that's one of the reasons why it was so polarizing. And then The Sight and Sound, selected as one of the 10 best films of all time, and Quentin Tarantino has famously listed the movie among his greatest films of all time, and Scorsese as being one of his favorite, if not the his favorite director. I believe that Tarantino, last time I saw, he had a top five list, and this was in, in the top five. Yeah, well, I mean, he's got great taste in film. Mm -hmm. And it's as relevant as ever. I mean, we all know that Joker, Todd Phillips' film, is heavily influenced by Taxi Driver, not just the character... But the setting, the locations, the themes, the, the elements that are going on in the film and how dark it is. You know, Joker almost getting an NC-17 rating and the way it was perceived by the media where people were warning people don't go to see this movie because something violent is going to happen in the, in the cinema even though John Wick's shooting 100 people in the face in the theater next door. Remember that people were saying that there was going to be like terrorism terrorism yeah. during the opening weekend there were theaters that were having metal detectors yeah. for people that to go see the theater the movie you know i, I think people there was a, a media frenzy of fear built up for this obviously it led to a lot of clicks and a lot of clickbait for them but also the perception of the film because it's dark it's nuanced even though not that many people get killed in that film joker not that many people get killed in taxi driver either joker had that persona of being like a dark evil movie that will just psychologically break you down and that it's dangerous for people to see versus just fun shooting in the face. And it, it's about tone and, and uh, authenticity. Your favorite word. Authenticity. <laughs> I'm using it today. <laughs> it really is about tone and the difference between something like John Wick or like a slasher movie is 
there is an escapist quality to it and there is a fantastical nature to it where you know it's just you know it's just a movie and, and these movies are also just movies taxi driver and joker for examples but there is an uh, aspect of it's there's no way it's based in reality whatsoever but taxi driver and joker they affect the audience in a different way because it feels like it is real in a lot of ways and it's just because of the tone and the approach to the material as opposed to it being a fun shoot 'em up or like a, a bloody slasher, it's ridiculous. Um, Taxi Driver and Joker and, and many other movies that fall in the same suit, they are approaching the film in as human as it pos- a way possible, meaning that, you know, it's saying, you know, this is, it's a reflection of the real world and the real cruelties of the world. There's no John Wick running around New York City killing bad guys. It's not real. But there are people that do terrible things, and it's a reality of society. It's a reality of our, our world. So uh, this movie reflects that, and Joker reflects that as well. And that's, what that's I think, the difference between um, those films and these films. And Taxi Driver is a movie that almost killed Scorsese himself trying to get it finished because the third act, there's a good amount of blood, and no one really seen it done that way before. That's why it was so visceral for audiences at the time. And he was going to get slapped with an X rating. They didn't have NC-17 back in the 1970s for their rating system. It's pretty much what PG and R and uh, X, pretty much. That was yeah. That was the yeah. rating system, I believe, back then. And so he was going to get slapped with an X rating because of the blood and the gore at the end of the film, the third act, when Travis Bickle saves Iris, even though he was trying to just kill somebody at some point, and that's where he's pushed to. But we'll get to that when we break down Travis and his actions later on. So when you watch this film, the blood, you may notice if you never heard this before or you've noticed something off about it, the surrealist quality where the blood is heavily desaturated, almost looks orange. They had to do that and able to avoid that X rating that was potentially going to hit the movie as it was going to get a theatrical release, which was something that they didn't want to do, obviously, and affected the film for Scorsese and Strader and what they've created. But they had to do what they had to do to get it done. And it was something that Scorsese had to do with a with a lot of pain because this was his baby this is his you know it's masterpiece this is the this is the movie goodfellas one of the best movies of all time but taxi driver's the juice it's his it's it's, it's. <laughs> that's the movie that defined martin scorsese and he had to make changes to it in order to get released in theaters and it's just such a disappointing thing for him to have to go through warner brothers actually wanted him to cut the entire sequence completely the whole third the whole act, thing yeah, that whole they climax. wanted him to completely cut the whole thing out and then using the desaturation, um, the MPA watched it again, and because they're a bunch of dummies, they're like, "Oh, it looks better. It's less <laughs> bloody," just because they desaturated it, and so the red didn't look quite as red or or as graphic. Um, it's, that, like, it's like Tarantino having to do the black blood on Beatrix Kiddo for the, the trailers, trailers for Kill yeah, Bill. Exactly, it's very very much like that. And that that finale, it still sh- shakes you to your core. I mean, I've seen I don't know how many shootouts in movies. I don't know how many people I've seen killed in movies. It's it's preposterous the number I've seen, but when I I watched this again the other night, and it made me like jump a couple of times, a couple of the moments, and made me my still makes my mouth open like holy fuck, like it's different, you know. And Scorsese has has only done action a, a handful of times, but when he does action, god damn it, he can do it really well and probably better than anyone, and it's so incredible. And this sequence really is. Uh, the ultimate ending to the story is the perfect ending in a lot of ways. Not ending, but uh, finale to it. And I just find myself so struck by it. No matter how many 
violent things I've seen on screen, this is still up there with one of the most powerful acts of violence I've ever seen in a movie or a TV show. It's so real. Yeah. And he doesn't have like massive action sequences in his movies. Very seldom you'll see that in a Scorsese movie, but the act of getting killed, it's always so raw. Like the scene in Casino, the, oh the beating God. of Pesci's character with the bats, that is one of the most cringe scenes yeah. I ever have to sit and watch. I love that movie, but every time that scene comes up, I'm just like squirming same thing with the skull crushing with the vice it's just these small short sequences of intense realistic brutal violence that makes it feel so authentic and what's and that's, what it, that's and what, what it is and sorry what makes it so realistic is like it's not just like a, a, a action movie where he's like double tap on the head shot in the chest and he's done like he goes in the hallway and what's he do he shoots the guy in the hand and he has trouble shooting sport the second time, and it's like he's running at him. It's awkward. He gets shot. Yeah, it's messy. Uh, it's not clean, and he never he he never hits the spot he wants to hit. Really, um, and that's what that's what, like what real shootouts are like. It's unpredictable, and it's not always like headshot right in the middle of the forehead. Whenever I see that in a movie, I'm like, come on, it's bullshit. Like, Unless come it's John on. Wick. Unless it's John Wick. Yeah, <laughs> or Jason but Bourne. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, come on. So. He understands that, and that's that's that awkwardness lends itself to the the realism of the action and violence he's he's portraying on screen. But I mean, we can get into the conclusion later on. Obviously, there's so much. To yeah, talk it's about like this film. where where do you really start for for this film? I would say with with Schrader in the writing. Yeah, I was gonna say before you interrupted me. <laughs> I thought you were kidding. asking I'm me. Just... I thought you were asking me. It was me. rhetorical. I thought Anthony was like, "Hey, Jim, it was rhetorical. Where do you think we should start?" <laughs> <laughs> but no, please take it away, Anthony. Where do you think we should start? <laughs> I think Paul Schrader's good. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. No, yeah. So Paul Schrader wrote the film. He collaborated with Scorsese several times over both of their careers. And Scorsese has produced a couple of the films that Schrader has directed. Uh, Schrader wrote this, this film. It was partially autobiographical. He was suffering from a nervous breakdown while living in Los Angeles. He was fired from the AFI basically friendless, and he was in the midst of a divorce. On top of that, he was rejected by a girlfriend. Sound familiar? Squatting in his... I'm like, talking about Travis Bickle. Is, is, is that a shot? <laughs> for Travis Bickle, I bet. Jeez, Anthony, the low blow. <laughs> Schrader. Alone by himself. No friends. Cat. <laughs> Sound familiar, Jim? Wearing glasses and black jeans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, squatting in his ex-girlfriend's apartment while she was away for a couple of months Schrader literally didn't talk to anyone for many weeks he went to porno theaters and he developed an obsession with guns Schrader was also at the time working as a delivery man for a chain of chicken restaurants so he was driving around all the time spending long hours alone in his car he felt I might as well be a taxi driver he also shared with Bickle the sense of isolation from being a Midwesterner in an urban center. Strader also decided to switch the action to New York City because taxi drivers are far more common in New York City. And Strader's script also clicked with Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro when they read it. I also read this interview where De Niro, apparent, this it might not be real, but I think it's, it sounds interesting. De Niro... Before he hit it big as an actor, he was working on a story of someone who wanted to carry out an assassination attempt um, and who also did – he was like a loner as well. So that's pretty interesting. It might be why De Niro really clicked with the script. Um, Scorsese, I think, clicked it with it because 
It portrays a really fascinating character set in New York. He can have a lot of freedom to, as a director to um, express his artistic vision. Um, and so I think that it was just kind of like a match made in heaven with these three artists. And the thing is, Loner Cinema is one way to look at it. And it's I, I understand where Schrader's point of view is coming from. Uh, and it's it's difficult for American men... I mean, it's except for like the last several years where people have been starting to encourage others to, you know, talk about problems, to be more open, to seek help, to seek therapy. But for a very long time in America, it was kind of frowned down upon for a man to seek help and it frowned down upon for a man to um, be vulnerable in front of others and to express problems and concerns and to seek a therapist like that would in there's also a, a problem where American men don't like to seek medical attention. Like they're stubborn. Like I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need to, I don't need to see a psychiatrist. So um, there's a representation of, you know, the reluctance to open up to anyone or, or to make a connection with anyone. And it kind of forces a lot of men to uh, isolate themselves and push people away. You see Travis push people away in this film and prevent people from getting close to him. And, in the rare occasions where he does try to open up with people, it doesn't work with neither Betsy nor Iris. Um, and so I thought it was an interesting uh, point of view to take for a character, this self-imposed isolation in a way, and this rejection of trying to connect with other people. I think it's even subconscious to the point where mm -hmm. he wants to connect with people, but subconsciously he, he maintains isolation and forces people to reject him and he perceives it as rejection you know yeah, great point we'll get into the character of travis bickle but i i think it's such it's probably the best character piece ever put on screen and that's why i can't wait to talk about it. but how we talk about bobby de niro for a little bit bobby so de niro for prep for this film worked 15 hour days for a month driving cabs as for preparation for this role he studied mental illness and during his off time when filming 1900, which he also shot in 1976, he visited a U.S. Army base in northern Italy and tape-recorded conversations with mid Midwestern soldiers so that he could pick up their accents. De Niro said that despite having just won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two in 1974, he was still a relatively unfamiliar face to the public and was recognized only once while driving a New York cab during his month-long research for this film, and it was actually by another actor. So another actor recognized him. He's like, oh, and they ended up talking about acting the whole time. The actor said, <laughs> you just won an Oscar. My God, is it that hard to get work? <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, not just driving a cab. So like you said, he was filming 1900, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's film in Italy at the same time. And so Peter Doyle, Peter Boyle, I mean, who played Wiz in this film, he is also like the dad in Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, that's, he plays yeah, Raymond's dad. The bald cab yeah. gives him the, yep. the advice that Travis calls him. Yeah. That's the dumbest thing so, I've ever heard. So that's Everybody Loves Raymond's dad. Oh, my God. I never put that connection. <laughs> Isn't that great? Um, She's not my mother. <laughs> Don't talk to your mother like that. You talk to her like that. She's not my mother. <laughs> the the uh, ultimate angry dad in yeah. a sitcom. He's like the pinnacle. Um, so Boyle said that De Niro would film in Rome all week on 1900. And then on Friday night, he would fly to New York and drive a cab all weekend. And then on Sunday night, he would drive back. He would fly back to Rome to film the next week at of 1900 in Italy. 
And so he was flying to New York on weekends while preparing for this role from Rome. I wonder if they had frequent flyer miles back then. I certainly hope so. (laughs) That just shows his commitment. There's a reason why De Niro is arguably the greatest actor of all time. It's because, like, what other actor would do that? To fly across the Atlantic Ocean every weekend, twice every weekend, to pr- just to drive a cab to prepare, not to film another movie. I- I'll give it, okay, they're, maybe they're filming another movie and they, they have to fly, but to, just to drive a cab for 12 hours a day, that is unparalleled commitment to the character, to the craft, and that's a testament to why he became such a successful and beloved actor because of that commitment. Like, who does that? He also took a massive pay cut in this film. So between the time that he signed the $35,000 contract to appear in the film and when it began filming, he had won the Oscar for his role in The Godfather Part Two, playing, obviously, Vito Corleone. And his profile as an actor in Hollywood soared. The producers were worried that De Niro would ask for a deserved larger pay raise since Columbia Pictures was very concerned about the project and funding and were looking for excuses to pull the plug. He could have asked for 10 times what he was getting at this moment. He could have gone to three, five million dollars to be a part of this film. This budget was only 13 million, ended up pulling about 25 million at the global box office. Pretty decent success, but just lived in infamy ever since. But De Niro said he would honor his original deal so that the film could get made. So, so much commitment to the project, making sure it gets done as well as adding so much to the script. Both Marty and De Niro are, you know, credited by Paul Schrader himself for adding so much to the story, adding so much to the script, adding so much to the character of Travis Bickle, specifically with De Niro. Tons of improvisation and tons of research he did to bring this kind of super isolated kind of mental illness to the character that wasn't really originally there in the script completely. But like, for example, some of the most famous lines were where Travis is looking in the mirror and he says, you talking to me? That you talking to me bit was an improvisation. It's, it's up in the air of where he got it from. Some people say it was from Marlon Brando. Some people say it was from seeing Bruce Springsteen on stage. There's a couple different sources that contradict each other, but it's an improvisation part of the, of the movie. And Paul Schrader says, I didn't write it, and it's the best line in the film. Uh, I just got to fact check you real quick. The, on, budget, the budget was $2 million. It was that low? It was a tiny, tiny I budget. I just saw. Tiny budget. It was actually... Oh, I'm sorry. It's $1.3 million. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, tiny. I, I, I thought I saw 13 Oh, yeah. I just got to say, that it was a low budget. Like, it was, bad. It was made on a shoestring budget Thanks in a lot of ways. Thanks for checking that, because I did not have my glasses when I looked. Hey, that's what I'm here for. We're a team. So, 1.3, not 13, Jim. And, um... So, the mirror scene, I also read that he got it from an acting teacher, Stella Adler, who taught Method. Uh, and many of the most famous actors from the 70s and 60s study with Stella Adler. Specifically in New York. Yeah. Um, one of the exercises they do is this you talking to me exercise. So some people say that's where he, that's where he pulled it from. But it could be any of those sources. I think only... I mean, maybe they don't even know anymore. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, I, I read three different so- like stories behind it. I think you just have yeah. to talk to De Niro. Maybe he's yeah. kind of like a Robert Pattinson type and just tells the, the different <laughs> story. For, just contradicts himself, just messing with people. Yeah, <laughs> but um, Mars Scorsese has always been a, a a collaborative director. He's very much. He's not a Fincher. He's not a Kubrick. He's more of like a open book to letting actors perform. And I saw this great Jonah Hill interview where he said that Scors- he said Scorsese shows up every day excited to see what you came up with and excited to see what you're going to do. 
and he encourages improvisation. So uh, he's always done that in his career. I mean, Mean Streets is probably all improv uh, and just on the cuff. And that film is just uh, remarkable. Uh, they first worked together on Mean Streets, he and De Niro. And De Niro played Johnny Boy. And Johnny Boy was actually just like a small supporting role. He's like the uh, the problem friend who is always in debt and always – he causes a lot of the problems for Harvey Keitel's character in that film. But it's Harvey Keitel as the lead of that movie. But De Niro having won the Oscar, and I just think he was – ultimately, he's just a better leading man. I think studios just liked him more, better, so they pushed him for Taxi Driver. Wasn't this offered to Dustin Hoffman? Dustin Hoffman turned it down. Turned it down. Yeah, he said he that did. he was crazy. He said Scorsese was crazy. And didn't understand it, and then he's like, that was a bad decision. Yeah, <laughs> terrible decision. But I mean, it would have been the same movie. Absolutely not. You know? I mean, you want to cast the guy who's flying from Rome every week and then drive a cab to prepare. And hey, not the, saying that Dustin Hoffman's not a committed actor. Yeah. I mean, he ran a lot for Hoff Marathon Hoffman's Man. Hoffman's a, a method actor, too. <laughs> Hoffman's a method actor. He did run a lot. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, method act Dustin Hoffman, Meryl Streep, uh, Stella Adler, method actors all over the 60s and 70s. But because of the low budget, under $2 million, which was still tiny for back then, even though it's the 70s, uh, this, a lot of the filmmaking was kind of like uh, improvisation in a lot of ways. And they didn't use many traditional studio lights or anything. Like uh, the majority of what you see of camera work in the cabs were just as natural lit as it is in real life. And Michael they, Chapman did the DP. Yeah, he, he did, like, it's one of the most mesmerizing um, films I've ever seen to this day, um, and it's still just intoxicating when you watch the footage that they captured, and there's so so much great coverage and B-roll that they mixed into the film for these, like, there's a couple of pretty decently length montages, but there's, there's a bunch of just, like, tiny mini montages, you know what I mean? And it's just f fantastic, but a lot of it, because they were shooting... Low budget, they were just filming while driving, and it was Scorsese and Chapman on the backseat floor, and it was in then in De Niro driving, and that's how they filmed a lot of this film. They didn't have lights, they didn't have equipment or gear gripped to the car like you have nowadays. Couple shots, couple, I'm, couple yeah, shots. yeah, couple. There are a couple shots, but I'm <laughs> saying uh, the majority of what they were doing was just very much like free. Kind of like making like a student film in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I love the yeah. aesthetic of this film. It's it's gorgeous, especially the way they shoot New York at night mm -hmm. with low light, just using what's natural and just using and taking the advantage of the colors of the reds and greens and and whites of street lights, of lamps, of city lights, of of stop signs, green lights, red lights, yellow lights, and I love the way they'll show passage of time while Travis is driving his cab, whether it's like close ups of streets that are going by or constant shots of green lights of a light above the street and just seeing six of them in a row yeah. meaning we've gone six blocks basically so i think they got really creative with how to use the backdrop of new york city at night as basically a dreamscape for the aesthetic of the film but also the editing because you mentioned the, the green street lights there's a shot there's an edit where scorsese cut the three three of the same shots of a green light it's identical one two three it's just like uh, a second of uh, the car passing by a green light and we're just filming with the pan of the green light. He cut to it three times over and over again, showing that like it's times blending together and they all look the same. You know what I mean? It's like there's nothing different. Like it's and that's like puts the audience into like the kind of like the hellish headscape that Travis is in this rep this repetition, this never ending night. You know what I mean? And I, I, the editing of this film is great. And there's some excellent like super cuts into the fair like i remember i love the uh the supercut into the fair the taxi fair 
and just got, cuts closer and closer and closer and closer every time like another 10 cents is racked up. Uh, things like that make the editing of the film really fantastic. Also, the ending is amazing. The, the credit, the credits is fantastic. The and, opening title credits yeah. are great too. The smoke in the taxi. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really phenomenal. Actually, the guy who designed the credits is the guy who designed the Star Wars credits. Um, Scorsese was friends with him, trying to get the designer on Mean Streets and on Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, but he had no prior work really, so the studio wouldn't let him do the credits on those Scorsese films. But then he did. The designer did a big movie. He did The Exorcist. He designed the credits for The Exorcist. And then after that, he was like the hottest designer in Hollywood after Saul Bass. And so then Scorsese was able to hire him. So this guy's done a lot of the credits for a lot of Scorsese films. Um, but he's also most famous for designing the um, Star Wars title. And Taxi Driver itself is one of the most loved and relevant films still from this era and Marty is probably your favorite director's favorite director. And Paul Strader is an incredible character, character writer and writer in general. He is a character, too. Yeah, <laughs> he is. And Travis Bickle still lives on. And, I mean, this is a movie that should be taught in every film class. And it's disturbing, for sure, and it gets misinterpreted a lot. And people might think it's promoting. What do you think about the, um, like the modern social media interpretation of it by younger generations? Well, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you mean that people probably interpret it as pro-domestic terrorism, pro-like... Yeah, but all, that and also just being but also just being like a film bro movie. I mean, the film bro term is just getting silly. Yeah. It's just people that love movies. And, hey, if you like Goodfellas and Taxi Driver, that means you like good movies. Yeah. And I don't care what you like. You like what you like. And mm -hmm. there's a reason why people love Taxi Driver so much and so many people connect with, connect with it. And I hate the term film bro because I know so many women and, and film woman people that just love Taxi Driver. It's like one of their all-time favorite movies. Goodfellas is one of their favorite movies. Yeah. Fight Club is one of their favorite movies. It's just like this this weird thing. American Psycho. Yeah, yeah. I know so many girls that love these movies so much. Yeah. And then it, the film bro term is only if guys like those movies. It's mm -hmm. silly. It is. It's, it's getting a bit much. We now. got a lot of a lot of female listeners uh, are excited to hear this episode. It's a fucking great movie. Yeah. And Travis Bickle is one of the most well-written and acted characters in history. It's still relevant at the time. I mean... There was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan in, in 1981 that was apparently triggered and inspired by this obsessive character of Travis Bickle. And the assassination plot was while Reagan was a presidential candidate, coincidentally, the assassination attempt caused the 53rd Academy Awards ceremony to be postponed for one day when De Niro won his best actor Oscar for Raging, Raging Bull. Bull in 1980. And the character itself... We could we were about to spend what a like, fucking like an hour what, on what this. a run that guy had the De Niro? deer the deer hunters in there like holy shit what a run of movies <laughs> it's pretty My incredible God. and Travis is pretty much in every scene he's the focus of every scene except for one or two, two. that's so, about it so um, Albert Brooks Sybil Shepherd their first scene and then, and then Squirt and Iris and, when they yeah. dance together sport. that's uh, oh, sport <laughs> sport <laughs> I want I just want to bring up um, Jodie Foster who is a sensationalist movie. She was only 12. However, she's actually not in... She's only in part of that scene with Sport. They actually... She she had an older sister who was 19 at the time, and they had very similar features, so her sister is the one who actually kisses Harvey Keitel. So a lot of people think that Jodie Foster was kind of put in these situations, but she was... Uh, she had a body double for those instances, and also she was... Uh, she had to go to therapy... To before filming to make sure that she was uh, uh, mentally sound to do handle something like this at such a young age, 
And also she was seeing a therapist while filming. So they were constantly checking in on her mental health while making this film. And uh, I think that Jodie Foster is, is, is an all-time actor. And she was, I, she, we talked about in our Letterbox episode, she was in Alistair Doesn't Live Here Anymore, uh, an earlier Scorsese film. And she just like had this maturity about her at a young age. You know what I mean? This intelligence and this like command. Uh, and the confidence around adults. And I think that's like, sometimes you see these precocious kids and like, it's like they're little mini adults in a way, you know what I mean? And even on top of that, I read a Tarantino interview where he said, you know that little girl in Once Upon a Time on yeah. the set? And she's like reading the book and she makes, and, and then, um, <laughs> well, she has the scene with Rick Dalton on, yeah, the, and Rick, on the movie Yeah, she set. makes Rick Dalton insecure and like, <laughs> she's like reading like a, an interesting story and he's reading just like a cowboy book and, well, she's reading yeah. the Walt Disney book. He's a genius, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, she was actually inspired by Jodie Foster from what Tarantino heard about her being this kid on sets, like these big Hollywood sets, but being like so intelligent, so eloquent, um, so mature for her age. And so, I would say... So she saw Taxi Driver, or she was, inspi- she was inspired by Jodie Foster? T- yeah, she was imp- inspired by just Jodie Foster being... Oh, you mean the character? Yeah, the character. Okay. Okay, so gotcha. Tarantino wrote, like, this is Jodie Foster in my Once Upon a Time gotcha. in Hollywood world. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's what she was like as a kid. Um, and so she did have a better grasp on, of things than, like, an average kid, people would say. You could One could say. So even though she was very young... First of all, she wasn't putting in the serious situations of the film. Um, and like I said, Keitel does not kiss her. He kisses Jodie Foster's 19-year-old sister who acted as a body double for that shot. So I think Scorsese did the best he could to try to protect the kid in that situation. People ask, like, why do you need to have a 12-year-old character for that role? Like, why, do you need, why, why would you need to have a 12-year-old sex worker? It's because that was, things like that were really happening. Things like that happen around yeah, the world. Yeah, right now. like it's a reality of the, like I said, it's it's different from a more you know shut your brain off kind of movie. This is like a depiction of real life and the the real horrors of humanity. And you know, there's incredibly disturbing things happening around every street corner um, that you might not know of, or and especially back then in the '60s and '70s in a big city like New York, where so many things were left unchecked. Like there were children that that were sex workers, and to this day. You know, sex trafficking for children is a horrible problem around the world. Still very much so, although you don't see it in the media or anything. But Surprisingly untalked about. Very much a horrible issue that nobody talks about for some reason. Um, and so Scorsese, he, he didn't beat around the bush. He's like, I, he's not going to make a movie and, and cast an adult just to make it more digestible for an audience to feel better about it. This is a reality, so he's going he's gonna to cast a kid to play this role because kids are in this role in real life at this time in this situation in these parts of the city. So it only made sense to cast a teen and not, to cast a kid for the role. Um, and so I th- I've, I've definitely seen a ton of stuff written about it being like she was taken advantage of and you shouldn't have put a kid in these situations even though it's a movie. Um, but Jodie Foster said she took so much great stuff away from the film. She said that she learned to become a real actor because she worked on this film, most notably with Robert De Niro, who taught her how to rehearse, who taught her how to prepare, how to create a real character. And improvise. Yeah, how to improvise. He would take her um, to cafes to practice their diner scene over and over again. And um, this is where she really learned to 
that acting is a craft that you have to like n- nurture and create and it's not just a, a, a role that you're reading lines of it's, it's a person you're portraying and so Jodie Foster credits this film for making her a real actor and she absolutely from everything I saw loved every second of the experience and then at the time people were saying that it was diff- it was a problem to put a kid in a the ending with the shootout with the blood and the gore and everything and all the violence happening in the, in the ending but then she said in an interview that you know the team took her through step by step of every beat of the violence all the prosthetics all the special effects and she actually got a kick out of like you know all the all the prosthetics and things that would just like set off or like um, you know the blood that would splatter and she, it was she it was a theatrical kind of thing and that made it's it probably so, fun it, she said she had a blast doing it and so I think people read into things too much without really understanding what's actually going on on set. Yeah, and like you said, she had a therapist that she worked with who also went through the dailies of the footage to make sure that she was not on set for any compromising situations mm-hmm. or saw anything terrible happen or part of those sequences. So it was, it was a very much controlled situation in terms of her mental state and making sure she understood that was everything that was going on, that it was fake. 12 years old, super precocious, but also a sponge of a mind that could take something in in the wrong way, possibly, but they really handled it really well. And the thing with Iris is there's a couple reasons why she's underage. First was real person that Paul Schrader met. Also, to kind of add to the angelic uh, thematic element of the two women in this film, which we'll get into in a little bit between Betsy and Iris, how they're both angel-like figures they to Travis. They also look a lot alike. Similar, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. they have very similar features in hair. Now, Paul Schrader wrote this character after meeting an underage prostitute while he was in New York City in pre-production and cast meetings for this film. So, she wasn't originally written like this in the original script. He was moping around in a bar late one night when he picked up a young woman, or actually, she picked him up probably, mm-hmm. because the way he tells this story is, I was shocked by my success until we got back to my hotel <laughs> and I realized she was one, a, pro- a prostitute sex worker, two, underage, and three, a drug addict. Well, at the end of the night, I sent Martin Scorsese a note saying, Iris is in my room. We're having breakfast at nine. Will you please join us? So we came down, Marty came down, and a lot of the character of Iris was rewritten from this girl who had had a concentration span of about 20 seconds. Her name was Garth. And... Another little fun fact about the character of Iris in the diner scene. I love the food that's depicted and shown in Taxi Driver. The food that Travis eats is ridiculous. We'll get into Travis's oh food. God. It's insane. But uh, Iris, she's got her diner scene with Travis Bickle. And she's eating toast. And she takes toast and she covers it with, with like, grape jelly, right? Looks delicious. Mm-hmm. But then she starts to sprinkle sugar all over on top of it. Now this can be interpreted a couple different ways. You know, she's a kid, she loves sugar, so she's putting sugar on top of sugar. But more accurately, Jodie Foster actually got this from another sex worker who was she around shadowed. the set. She, yeah, shadow, basically learning Not from... Not during the job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on set, who did the same thing. She would do jam and sugar because it would help curve her cravings for drugs as long as possible. So there was a little trick that she would do to... Help last as long as possible without having to get another fix. So they incorporated that, and Jody incorporated that into her character of Iris. And um, the guy who carried out the assassination attempt in real life, he was actually also obsessed with Jodie Foster after he saw the film, and he became a stalker of her, and it was like a real problem. John Hinckley Jr. That's the guy. And so he was obsessed. He became obsessive and stalked Jodie Foster, then also carried out an assassination attempt. 
I think we also have to talk before we get more into the characters and get into Travis Bickle about the offensive language in this film, which you, you have to address. And a lot of movies have a lot of bad language because they have characters that are bad people. They're not promoting this kind of language. These are horrible people in these movies. I mean, we're talking about Scorsese as an actor who had a fill-in last minute in the back of the cab mm-hmm. saying the N-word in 1976 in this film. That guy is probably a killer. He's probably going to kill his wife. He's a terrible person. So, of course, he would say terrible things. Travis Bickle says some racist things in this film. He's a killer at the end of this film. He's not a hero. Of course, he's going to say offensive things. So, at the end of the day, authentic characters, realistic characters, realistic dialogue. That's what it's about. It's not promoting these things. It's just part of life. It's part of humanity. Yeah, there are bad people out there. And some sometimes some movies portray them in their films and you don't want you don't want to sugarcoat or sugarcoat or cut around the corners of uh the darkest elements of humanity because we have to understand that they're there and you know it's a part of our lives that they're just they're just bad things out there yeah i don't think travis bickle would have been an ally despite (laughs) saying all these things okay (laughs) absolutely not he's a bad guy and we'll get into the moral ambiguity as well as so many things to talk about whether travis is evil why he carries out his acts of violence. And I just find it so fascinating. But do you want to get into our intermission first? Because we're like 40 minutes into this thing. Cook it. Damn. Let's and do then it. we'll get into Travis Bickle in the story and film of Taxi Driver. But before we continue, the very best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to leave those five-star reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Apple gives you the option to leave a written review, which we love to read out during our intermission. And we'll get to one in just a minute, but also becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast is the ultimate way to support our show. We have tiers in the $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single tier of patronage gets you access to not only the weekly chat every Wednesday, which is exclusively on Patreon only, but also a weekly bonus episode. So you get two free bonus episodes. Well, not free. You get two bonus episodes at a minimum <laughs> cost of $2 a month. That's nothing. That's like a sip of less coffee. Than, less than a cup of coffee. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> less than a cup of coffee. What's that from? I don't know. I just started saying it. It's from something. I it is. Like. It's, it's less than a Dunkachino. Dunkachino. <laughs> <laughs> but every tier has awesome perks. In addition to that, we have the $10 tier, which also also gets you access to our discord we have an incredible community we're on there chatting all day as well as we do our watch parties on there a couple times a month which is super fun we just did american cycle we did oh, yeah. blade recently it's always a terrific time 25 dollars, you get your own custom episode you pick a topic we'll do it for you hundred dollar tier the granddaddy chosen one tier has so many perks you get free merch like all the others as well as you get a private watch party get your custom episode as well and you get to come on the show after three months for a fun guest segment. So thanks so much for all of our patrons around the world. You really keep the show going. It's the only reason why we have can make all this ridiculous amount of content for you every week. So thank you so, so much. This episode is also sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code over there, Raiders10, to get 10% off your order today. MoviePosters.com has a huge library of pretty much every movie and TV show in their poster selection be sh- <laughs> poster selection. I'm a poster. <laughs> Be sure to head over there for all of your poster needs, including all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting. We have a ton of these posters on our set, in our bedrooms, in all over our house. 
high quality, super affordable prices, the best you can get for your money. And don't forget to use our promo code at, at movieposters.com. It is Raiders 10, and it'll get you 10% off your order today. Now, let's get into our intermission, Anthony. You ready for the movie quote competition? I was born ready. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. <laughs> you pull out a piece, I'll shove it up your ass and click, click, and, and pull the trigger till it goes click. Big <laughs> <laughs> Lebowski. Yep. <laughs> All right, here's mine. The dealers are watching the players. The box men are watching the dealers. The floor men are watching the box men. The pit bosses are watching the floor men. The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The casino manager is watching the shift bosses. I'm watching the casino manager, and the eye in the sky is watching us all. I referenced this earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. Casino. Great, great movie. I believe it has the most um, dialogue of all time. In a movie? Yeah. Most lines spoken, most words. Mm. Might Ooh, that's an interesting yeah. fact. We should check that so out. There's so much narration by De Niro. There is a lot. It works so well. That's another thing that people think, or like all of Martin Scorsese movies are voiceover narrated. It's not true. It's not true at all, man. But he fucking perfected it. Yeah. <laughs> Some he, of the best he, ones he, ever yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> but not every one is voiceover. Moving on to guess this movie release year. You ready, Anthony? Ready. Once Upon a Time... In America. Um, what year did Tax Driver come out? 72? 76. 76. That was your favorite movie. This guy. He's so nervous. 1978. 84. Shit. 1984. Yikes. Yikes. Once upon a time. In Sergio America. Leone. What year did the Deer Hunter come out? 19. I feel like. Not an 80s movie. I'm going to say 1979. 78. Oh, man. Close. Close. You can like kind of tell them by, by like the film stock, like kind of what <laughs> yeah, how decade. great it yeah. is. Yeah, like what decade a movie's in. <laughs> it's true. You got to get uh, Movie pop quiz time. Train Spotting stars Ewan McGregor as Renton, the Danny Boyle film from Scotland. Can you name any of the other cast of druggies in his crew. Can you name any one of them? <laughs> any of the actors? Any, um, Just the name Johnny of Lee Miller. Yes. Yes. So Johnny Lee Miller is Sick Boy. Can you name any others? Um, oh, uh, Kelly McDonald. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I would say, but not, oh, like, not in the crew. I mean the crew of druggies. Crew, you mean yeah, the crew. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Um, the guy's name. Um, <laughs> fuck. Tough question. I don't know any. But at yet. least you got all you had to do was get one, so yeah. you passed. And I did we, it. <laughs> we have Ewan Bremner as Spud, Kevin McKidd as Tommy, and then Robert Carlyle as Begbie. Robert Carlyle. Oh my God. Also, twenty-eight weeks later, the opening sequence is uh, terrific. Damn it! How did I forget Robert Carlyle? I don't know, man. You'll be thinking about that. There's the two next... guys named Ewan in that movie. Yeah, <laughs> spelled differently. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how many films has Bobby De Niro directed? Three. Incorrect. Two. Yes. <laughs> Can you name them? Uh, Bronx Tale. Mm-hmm. And what was the other fucking movie he made? Um, he didn't direct that Capone movie, no. Did he? The Untouchables? Yeah. That was De Palma. I don't know. The Good Shepherd with Matt Damon. Oh, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Pretty yeah. good. 
pretty good movie. Yeah, Angelina Jolie, Matt Damon, about the CIA and its founding. It's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got any Raider haters? Any hater comments? Raider this, this week, haters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got some. We should make some sounds of like Raider haters. Yeah, we need some. We need some, a sound box over here. Because we keep doing collaborations with podcasts, and, and mm-hmm. a lot of them like they have their own soundboard, and I kind of I'm kind of jealous. Yeah. Um, I've like, ro- I- <laughs> <laughs> I roasted Grayson in a DM, and he said that roast gonna make me unsubscribed. <laughs> Grayson Younts. Yeah. Mark Vega in our TV show finales uh, clip. Shocked you're not watching Barry and Ted Lasso. Unsubscribe. <laughs> uh, Billy John Hansen wrote in uh, the taxi driver clip I made on TikTok dissecting the hallway scene. Do more of these or I'll unsubscribe. <laughs> and then I posted one about seven and he, he commented, all right, I'm subscribed. <laughs> Mason also wrote in that taxi driver clip, uh, this movie came out before you were born. Why are you talking about it? Unsubscribed. <laughs> I love the inside jokes. <laughs> oh man! Because uh, someone hated, left us a, a bad review on Apple because we talked, we liked a movie and talked about it that was made before we were born. Yeah, believe it or not, not allowed to do that on the internet yeah. these days. <laughs> we're gonna get in trouble for Taxi Driver. Yeah, it's crazy. In our Supergirl clip, I made a clip about how. Uh, people are already hating on the fact that there's a Supergirl that exists. <laughs> After 17 <laughs> Superman movies and projects and TV shows. Uh, Space Giraffe wrote, hopefully they unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> I have a real hater. Uh, Adam, that's just all, that's his profile name, Adam, wrote on a TikTok clip talking about something. I can't, I can't see the clip. It's cool, is, man. Is, I'm just trying to see what the clip was. I can't. All right. He wrote, is this a new thing? Explaining every obvious thing in a movie? Gen Z really doing everything not to get a normal job these days. So I replied, sounds like someone's jealous. Side eye. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? Work at a gas station, bro? Seriously, like, bro. Get off our Nothing back. wrong with that. What, make, we can't make entertainment? Entertainment doesn't exist anymore? Hey, man. The, the world changed. And you got to catch up. Yeah, I bro. saw the signs. Yeah, we saw bro. the signs. Yeah, bro. We're in the entertainment industry. All, you know what you do to get to make the to make it in the entertainment industry? You make entertainment. <laughs> That's it. I got a hater for uh, a real one, Sasha Kaye as well. The same clip someone wrote sellout, and then I responded, "Likes a female character. It's called a sellout." <laughs> Lol. <laughs> I saw that. In the- Listen, y'all know we love Superman. We love Henry Cavill. There's been how many Superman movies and TV shows in cartoons? Yeah. God I- forbid, so- Supergirl has. Not a ton of screen time in a Flash movie. God forbid. <laughs> like, relax. I also saw someone who was really upset. He's. They were like, well, it's not fair that they fired fired Cavill and now they're making this movie with Sasha Kai replacing him. I was. It's like, you you realize they made this movie two years ago, right? It's not replacing him. They, they've they shot this Snyder years ago. hinted this with Man of Steel with the other open pod. Yeah. They, that was a hint at Supergirl coming they, into the DC. They filmed this movie a long time ago. That was always the plan. Ago. That was yeah. his plan. He was going to bring Supergirl in. Uh, in my clip for the Capro being the box office king, Jake Helly wrote, "This was articulated so well. I guess I won't unsubscribe yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> it's funny. So our five star review in Apple today is actually also an unsubscribe. Oh, let's hear it. I saw the word unsubscribe and I knew it was going to be a banger. 
and this, their name is just a bunch of clothing emojis. <laughs> it's, it's, username is shirt, pants, shoes, sunglasses. <laughs> and then the, the title is horror, five stars. Absolutely vile humans. I cannot understand the absolute ignorance of these two similar looking individuals. How could they even begin to understand the intricacy of films such as Morbius and Fast X? I will never, ever subscribe to fools such as this. How are movies like Jaws and There Will Be Blood on the top of your lists. <laughs> Good luck, young gentleman. You'll be forgotten in the sands of time. Unsubscribe. <laughs> You'll be forgotten in the sands of time. What a great review. That's awesome. That's, That's fantastic so stuff, man. That's so funny. Thank you so much for that. That's that made me laugh so much. It's hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> fools. Fools. I will never subscribe to such fools as this. <laughs> it's like a, a Dennis Reynolds rant. <laughs> <laughs> from sunny <laughs> it is yeah definitely great stuff all right uh what's your streaming recommendation anthony i wrote a mac com- I-, <laughs> <laughs> I have a main one i was like is that a big daddy <laughs> voice because <laughs> <laughs> i was talking about big daddy with someone earlier today <laughs> about how john stewart like it was one of his early roles before the daily show um i recommend in the heat of the night available on the criterion channel Sidney poitier plays a detective who is just in a in a small town visiting his mother where he's picked up by cops because they suspect him being the killer of someone who was recently killed just on the basis of him being a black man. And ultimately, he has to fight against the discrimination and racism of the local police force to help them solve the case. It's really, really good. Definitely highly recommend checking it out. It was fantastic. Great rec. My recommendation is a horror film on Max directed by Bong Joon-ho called The Host. It's a really excellent film. I think it was the first Bong Joon-ho film I ever saw. You introduced it to me like years ago. And it was on Prime for quite a while, but now the licensing has shifted to Max, where to watch the host. They, um, yeah, they, the Amazon. <laughs> I used their log line. The place to watch. The place to watch the host. Oh my the, God. The, the one to watch for the host. The place to watch the host. <laughs> also, we have HBO. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I remember Prime had a bunch of South Korean films. Still um, do. But I think, yeah, they lost a few. They, they did. Have you seen, but with Max, have you seen what they've done to the credit system on their films? Oh, they changed it. They, not recently. I watched a movie on it's Max like the that. other night, and they still have it. So uh, they have the cast, writers, producers, but then they, well, then they have a section called creators. They don't have directors anymore, unless they're hopefully changing it soon. It they said they creators, would. And it'll list everyone involved with creation of the project, whether it's someone who owned the rights or bought the rights, whether it's a producer, editor, director, editor. Yeah. So, like, instead of it just being Bong Joon-ho or if, instead of just being Martin Scorsese for a film, it'll be, like, nine names. And I don't get why. It, they got a lot of flack for it online, and um, Twitter went after them, and they said they were going to change it. I don't think they have. They have was, not yet. Like, who thought that was a good idea? I think they're probably trying to bring, like, the like the equity to a project of like every artist involved and give everyone credit. But how can you be a, like say you're a new person to the film or and just like you're getting into movies um, and like if you saw that you'd be like you wouldn't know what each department was like how can you get an interest in a certain department like how I know, are you yeah. gonna how are you gonna be a fan of an editor and learn from that editor if you don't even know that they are the editor of the movie you like. But also just the complete misrepresentation of what a director does for a movie that's such a slap in the face to directors yeah it's insane a lot of people make a movie together a lot of people are involved and it's important to get everyone's credit there 
but to just lump everyone into creator, the creators, whether you're producer, director, writer, right to purchaser, book writer, all of that, in like having 17 mm-hmm. names for the creators of a movie, like what are we doing? They're silly. What are we actually doing? Yeah. What's the point of making movies? <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Goodness. All right, rant over. Let's get into Travis Bickle. You better change that, Max. Yeah, Max, we're listening. This is not the place to go to find out who directed a movie. <laughs> what cinematographer? Don't worry about it. The entire camera department. <laughs> Roger Deakins? We don't like him. <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's get into uh, Taxi Driver. And really start, want to start breaking down Travis Bickle? Yeah, Travis Bickle, I think um, he's, I mean, we've already said he's one of the most interesting characters ever put on screen. Uh, he's not a hero. He's not a good guy. He's a very, very flawed individual. Um, but also, what makes him so inter- interesting is, like, his inability to, like, perceive the world in a normal way. Like, for him, he thinks, like, taking a girl on a date to see a porn is a normal thing to do. Just because he sees other people going to a porno theater and... Um, and also like just trying to hit on the girl that works at the porno theater. Like the girl does not want to go out on a date with a guy who's like going to a public porno theater. He just, he does not perceive things in a normal way and the way that, and especially social dynamics, especially, um, the way people interact with one another in society, he is just like so skewed in his perspective of things and what he deems like normal behavior is very far from it. And uh, the entire film is based upon that, and all it, his perception informs everything about him. The way he perceives woman as either being like uh, a victim or a goddess. You know, he worships Betsy um, until she rejects him, and then she he ends up worshiping Iris in a way and wanting to be her hero until he realizes that she doesn't want a hero. And so he he puts on these fantastical notions of things and people. Men are either killers or or pimps, you know what I mean? And so the way he looks at the world is completely um, unhinged in a way. We get a lot from his introduction right away. You know, we find out that he's a veteran, a Marine from Vietnam. He's come back and he's got insomnia. He can't sleep at night, so he wants to work late. So he'll do anything. I'll, I'll drive anywhere. I'll pick up anyone. I'll drive any kind of person. Any place, anytime. Any place, anytime. Um, he, he's got kind of an odd way of speaking to people this really dry sarcasm that really only he understands and gets he has a horrible diet he eats like crap and eats junk even though he says i gotta get my body fit because he's a walking contradiction which we'll get into he drinks a lot yeah. pops pills a lot we can only we don't know what kind of pills but we can just assume as a prescription he's clearly dealing with some mental health issues or plenty of mental health issues from trying to reassimilate back from war he's probably done terrible things in vietnam and he's trying to reassimilate back into society, which is why he doesn't understand what it's like to have a, a human-to-human relationship back in the world that he's from originally. And because he's changed so much, you can assume he was probably a lot more of a normal person before he went to war. And you can see what it's just done to his brain. And is Travis evil? I mean, what is the source of his turmoil, which is maybe the biggest problem for him is not understanding his biggest problem in life or what's wrong with him where Paul Schrader says his biggest turmoil is why do I exist? Why am I here? But he never understands that. And that's one of his biggest problems as a character in this film is not understanding his problem because Paul Schrader himself says he's a character who 
he based off Eastern characters and just basically dropped that kind of character type into America in our kind oh, of the writing. archetype of it? The archetype. Yeah. And then put him in an American archetype in American situations. And it's a character who, you know, in a Japanese story would have killed himself, but in an American story kills others. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I can't remember which movie it he, he referenced. I read an interview where there's a line in the movie where when a Japanese person does this, they'll kill themselves versus an American person will roll the window down and shoot somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's basically kind of the headspace of the character of Travis Bickle. That makes a lot of sense. And the way he looks at the world, the the reason why he isolates himself is because he looks at the world as like an illness and a disease. Uh, and he talks about the scum on the streets. He, he calls all sorts of people and things scum. He doesn't like anything he sees, and he is a constant spectator. He's constantly observing, constantly looking, and so much of this film, the cinematography is on De Niro's eyes, and we see him, these close-ups of his eyes, or we see the reflection of his eyes in the in the rearview window, window of the vehicle or on the side mirror of the vehicle. He's always watching, and he doesn't like anything he sees. And yet he's still he's still choosing to be there. He's choosing to be like in like the world's like an open wound to him that's rotting. Um, and there's that great conversation with Palantine where he says, you know, the world someone needs to clean this place up. Um, he says one day a, a wave, a huge wave, should come over and wash this place away to clean everything up. And he doesn't like what society's become. He doesn't like what humanity's become. Um, and he, in a way, he that's the main reason why he isolates himself. He has no connection to anything, and he doesn't see anything good, anything good in the world, but he is also a product of his environment. He's only spending time in the most wretched places of the city, you know, in the underbelly of New York City, in the, in the bowels of New York City. So nothing good's going to be there, um, and that's why he has this perspective on the world because in his eyes, he doesn't really see anything worth liking until he sees Betsy from afar and then... He gazes at her all for several hours each day. It's almost like a form of entertainment for him when he's watching her. Like he pulls up to that spot outside of the campaign headquarters and he like has a drink and he just sits there. It's like watching a movie. I think Scorsese had him sipping on a drink because he wanted it to be because he wanted it to be like Travis Pickles in a movie theater. He's, he's eating popcorn and drinking a Coke, and he's wa- but he's not watching a movie. He's watching Betsy from afar. Coming up with his own opinion of yeah. what she's like. But also a fantasy of her, too. Yeah. And so he escapes into that fantasy of, of Betsy, of putting her on a pedestal, um, until eventually he does actually work up the courage to actually ask her out. He's got some riz. Yeah, he He's does. got some game. Yeah. I mean, I want to get to that in a second because I found the interview that I was talking about with Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. but then we can get back to Betsy's angelic introduction in that approached by Travis, which is a really important part of the film. So this is a, an interview Paul Schrader did with Film Comment. Just pulled it up, just found it that I was talking about. And this is about Travis Bickle, whether he should kill kill somebody or commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Basically, Paul Schrader wrote this character as somebody in Eastern writing would have killed himself versus American writing killed somebody else. So the time has come to kill someone else rather than kill himself. Before I sat down to write Taxi Driver, I reread Saturnose because I saw the script as an attempt to take the European existential hero that is the man from The Stranger, Notes from the Underground, Nausea, Pickpocket, Le Fouet Filet, and a man from, escaped and put him in an American context. In doing so, you find that he becomes more ignorant, ignorant of the nature of his problem. Travis's problem 
is the same as the existential heroes, that is, should I exist? But Travis doesn't understand that this is his problem, so he focuses it elsewhere. And I think that is a mark of the immaturity and the youngness of our country. We don't properly understand the nature of that problem, so the self-destructive impulse, instead of being interdirected as it is in Japan, Europe, and much older cultures, becomes outer directed. The man who feels the same has come to die will go out and kill other people rather than kill himself. Here's a here's a line in Yakuza. This is the movie which says, when a Japanese cracks up, he'll close the window and kill himself. When an American cracks up, he'll open the window and kill somebody else. That's essentially how the existential hero changes when he becomes American. There's not enough intellectual tradition in this country and not enough history, and Travis is just not smart enough to understand his problem. He should be killing himself. Obviously, suicide is not a good thing. This is just Paul Schrader's words in an interview. He should be killing himself instead of these other people at the end when he shoots himself in a playful way with the hand to his head going... That's what he's been trying to do all along. That makes a lot of sense. So he's he's uh, got this inner conflict and this situation he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand what he's feeling inside. And he's taking it on and putting it onto the world around him. And in a way, blaming the world for how he feels. And blaming what he sees out his window for all of the negative emotions he has inside. So he's putting his shit and putting it onto the world in a way. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's get back to Betsy. And I, I mean, we could talk about the woman of Taxi Driver for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but and also with the cinematography and the editing, Scorsese uses slow motion a few times in this film um, really precisely. And this is an example where we see slow motion where Betsy walks into work. And it's not super slow, slow-mo. It looks like it was 30 frames dropped down to 24. Um, but it's slow enough where it has, a, uh, has that mystical feeling, that uh, ethereal quality to her. And also Scorsese's cameoing in the background, sitting on the stoop, staring at her. Um, but I think that the use of slow motion in this film, happen- it happens a few times, and goddamn, it's so powerful when you see it. They cannot touch her. And the introduction of Betsy is very angelic, pure, dressed in all white, this beautiful woman who looks like straight out of a movie. She works for a a presidential candidate, Palantine. And you could say that her work in life, you know, it's filled with superficiality versus if we stay on the woman of Taxi Driver. Iris, her introduction to Travis Bickle is she basically jumps in the back of a cabbie. We don't even see the guy that she's interacting with, which is a great contradiction between Palantine and sport. You could say the people who control the woman that he is obsessed with that, you know, Iris does not have a graceful entrance, but he also does perceive her as an angelic figure. She's also dressed in white multiple times. And when Travis goes and eventually picks her up to talk to her inside her place, she's got a very angelic setting. She's got candles lit everywhere. She's in white. And so Martin uses a lot of religious thematic elements and storytelling Martin. devices. <laughs> <laughs> My guy, Martin. I will say you do see Harvey Keitel in that scene. But he's wearing the brown suit. No, we I don't, don't see I, his face. That's though. what I mean. You yeah, see him, but yeah. the way versus yeah. like Palantine, we see his face on posters everywhere. Yeah, we see his torso, and then we we don't see his face till later on. In a way, you see someone who's working for this man. In exactly both, in both regards, and that's why eventually the two people that Travis is eventually going to target in this film 
are both Palantine and then Sport, the two people who control the things that he's obsessed with. And also, he re realizes are the reasons for his rejection by both of them. And um, interestingly, both women look up to, respect, and admire the the man they work for. So, obviously, Betsy has a lot of respect for Palantine, believes he would make a good president, and works full-time for him volu uh, as voluntarily. Like, she wants this job, she wants to be there, and she thinks that Palantine can make a difference. Whereas Sport has manipulated... Uh, Iris into believing that he cares about her, he loves her, he's a man who will take care of her, and so she'll do anything for him. And both, so they're both hierarchies. However, obviously, Palantine has not manipulated Betsy <laughs> into doing terrible things, but in a way, they both respect, admire, and want to. They 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 want the approval of the man they work for. And there's this great interview that. Scorsese and Schrader did with Roger Ebert back in 1976 about these characters, about Iris Betsy and, and, and Travis. And this is quoting Scorsese and Schrader. So from Scorsese, Travis suffers from the goddess whore complex. You're raised to worship women, but you don't know how to, pro to, how to approach them on a human level or on a sexual level. The thing that's, that's the thing with Travis. The De Niro character, the taxi driver, the girl he falls for, the Sybil Shepherd character. It's really important that she's blonde, a blue-eyed goddess. Then Schrader says, and then he goes from a goddess to a child goddess. He's referencing Iris here. The 12-and-a-half-year-old prostitute he's trying to rescue, she's unapproachable too for him. Then Scorsese continues, she has the candles burning in her bedroom. She's like a saint to him. He can't imagine these pimps trying to treating her the way they do before he goes to Avenger, it's almost like he cleanses himself. He also can't imagine her not wanting to leave. Exactly. He's shocked. He's like, I can get you out of here. Don't you want to leave? She's like, they, I don't want to go anywhere. He's like, come on. Damn him. Damn, damn man. man. Come on, damn, man. Damn, man. Like, he was <laughs> expecting her to be like, please rescue me. Please save me. Taking me away from her. And so he was shocked by her disinterest in wanting to go anywhere. Yeah, and he's only found interest in her, which he saw her and recognized her a few times. Obviously, she jumps in his cab earlier in the film about halfway through. It's not it's not much different from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And then halfway through the film, he sees her and notice, she notices that this cabbie's following her and her friend. And then they pick up a couple guys to avoid him, basically. Mm -hmm. Similar to how he would follow Iris around, basically. You can assume that he spent hours and days at a time following these two women, first Bets first Betsy and then following Iris around. Yeah, and I would say one of the most interesting parts about the Travis-Betsy situation is the ending where after the events, after his basically crusade and he becomes a famous person in the press... And then Betsy comes back and goes to his cab and wants a ride to her home. And in a way, she's opening up to Travis and saying, basically, will you go out with me again, essentially? And he rejects her this time because she rejected him um, after he tried to take her to the porno theater. And she was extremely uncomfortable and shocked that he would take her there. Um, so in a way, she rejected him in every in every regard as a human being. And then he rejects her at the end of the film. But what I find interesting is it's not just that she finds him to talk to him. She finds him and asks him to drive her home. And so she's completely opening her up, her world up to him. And she wants him 
to see where she lives. Like that's the ultimate, like a sign of trust for a woman to give a man, especially in this situation of driving her home to her doorstep and he still rejects her. And so I find the uh, the ending between Travis and Betsy uh, one of the most interesting parts of the film and the complete lack of dialogue about their relationship, but more so about more casual casualities um, like the press and how he's been. And I, I just think it's so interesting. I've never seen anything like it before, but it was just a terrific kind of flipping of the switch for Travis and Betsy. It's so well directed, too. You would expect them to go back and forth about everything about the relationship. Like any Hollywood movie. But how does Marty open that scene up? He opens it. It's just a shot on on Travis, and we don't even see who got in the cab, who's in the back seat, because I believe he's at the cab. He's standing, someone says, Travis, yeah. you have a fare. Yeah. We don't even see who's in the back. We don't even know if it's a woman or not. We just see Travis. He looks back a few times through the rearview mirror. That's about it. And then we don't hear the voice or see who it is until she she brings up Travis. She says hi to Travis, basically. And then he's like gives her a very polite, hi, how are you? Basically just shunning her in a lot of ways. And then we get the shot of Betsy in the back of the cab. It's like, oh, my God, it's Betsy. Mm-hmm. So just terrific directing by the headscape of, of the headspace of where Travis is at that point. But let's talk about their meeting in the way that Travis the approaches Riz? her. Yeah, the Riz. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's been hanging around Palantine's headquarters and spying and watching Betsy for days now, you can assume. And she even has her campaign friend, played by Albert Brooks, to go kind of tell him to get away that Cavie's been staring Tom. at us. And he was, yeah, he's great. I yeah. believe Harvey Cartel got offered that role, but turned it down to play the pimp. Yeah, he chose to play sport. I think that was a great yeah. choice. He's terrific. It's a, a better sport. character. <laughs> Way better. Um, Albert Brooks is awesome, though. He got snubbed for drive. But he eventually approaches Betsy one day. He puts on a suit. He approaches A red suit. Yeah. He thinks he understands Betsy. He knows nothing about politics, knows nothing about her. But he's just going off this perception of what he's built up inside of her. Like you said, that's a great point. Like he watches her like it's a movie he's creating in his head, basically. And he does say some interesting things to her. And he's very blunt and forward. But you got to respect the approach he has to her and being confident and also making a connection with her that she clearly felt too because when they go to the diner after, you know, he, he talks about that connection and he said that gave me a right to come in there and talk to you because I felt there was something between us unlike you and your colleague. And he asks her if she felt the same way and she very seriously says, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Yeah, and also to contrast Travis with Tom... And Tom and Betsy, they have like a flirtatious co-worker kind of thing going on. Kind of like your work wife. Work yeah, husband. exactly. Just like messing around. being They're, they're clearly buds at work. Um, but it is very flirty. It can be flirty. So when Travis talks to her, he, ta- he talks to her in a completely honest way. And it's a deep way of speaking. He's talking about how... He thinks she's lonely. She looks like a very lonely person. Tom would never say that to her. And so in a way, men like Tom would never be honest with her about anything. But the first thing Travis is is extremely honest and extremely vulnerable. And that's what really strikes her um, with Travis is his um, ability to speak to her in as true and a human way as possible, not just flirting with her, not just trying to hit on her. Not just complimenting her. He does compliment her, but 
Um, I think just the, the brutal honesty of it is what really gets her attention. I love the shot that Marty gets of the table. He says, everything, everything on this desk means nothing. You're a lonely person. And he connects with her because he's a lonely person as well. And that's why she agrees to go out with him. And, and then he bashes Albert Brooks for 10 minutes. <laughs> I don't like him very much. I think he's silly. <laughs> and then they go out and they have pie. He has pie with cheese on it, which was the same last meal for, I can't remember what serial killer it was for. Not last meal, but a confessional meal. Mm-hmm. I think it was, what was the, the crazy? Someone said it was a killer and he said, I'll, I'll confess you, to everything yeah, with if you give me a piece apple of pie, pie and with, a slice of cheese. Yeah. And that's what Travis orders. Yeah. Betsy had fruit salad. She could have had anything she wanted. And, you know, Travis, he's an awkward person, but and I, I think Betsy recognizes that the way he communicates is off. It's unique. It's different. She says that line, I don't think I've ever met anybody like you. And she's interested, obviously, because she agrees to go to a movie with him. And little does she know. And he also gets her an album, which she references the Christopher Christofferson album and calls him a walking contradiction. Which can be overanalyzed, this this sequence of her saying that, because she doesn't know Travis, but she calls him a walking contradiction based off this short conversation. But Travis himself is definitely an absolute walking contradiction contradiction for things that Betsy doesn't know about, you know, like having a horrifically bad diet despite saying I want to stay fit and lean and ordering four candy bars at the at the movies, eating that the bread cereal with sugar and brandy on it. So was it cereal or was it rice? No, it's bread, uh-huh. milk, sugar, and brandy. Oh, my God. That's the cereal that he's eating like halfway through the film. Oh, my but God. But also having four candy bars and yeah. popcorn and a soda at a, at a at a porno movie. Too much abuse has, has gone on. And drinking like a fish constantly as well as... And pie and cheese. Yeah, <laughs> so he has a horrible diet despite saying that he wants to be fit and lean and healthy. He's a more, more contradictions, I mean, in addition to drinking and taking pills. Also, just talking about the filth of New York City and the, and the scum and wanting to, a rain to come by and wash everything clean while he lives there. That's he's. He's part of it. He drives people he dis- despises around all night. He goes anywhere. So he's a part in, of all the contradictions and things that he despises and disgusts him. So he, he absolutely is a walking contradiction. And he takes her to a movie, and it's a porno movie, and he says he sees other couples there. There are couples in the theater, but, but his perception and his understanding of what society deems polite or normal is so backwards because you can argue his mental health problems from trying to reassimilate back in America after war. For Travis, he thinks like this is going to the movies because he even says, well, I don't know much about movies. I, I thought this was just like a, a normal movie for, for people to go see. I mean, he's like, um, we can do something else. He's like, I can take you somewhere else. Like for him, this is like Hollywood in his eyes. You know what I mean? This porno, this, this porno theater. Like he doesn't go there to pleasure himself he goes yeah, there to watch, watch the movies. movies he watches the movies they she there are several shots scenes of him in this theater and he's not doing any anything nasty he's, he's eating popcorn he's, candy this is going to the movies for him and that's why he thinks it's normal to hit on the clerk there in the opening of the film um and so he his he has no understanding of of popular culture he has no understanding of media he has no understanding of what real entertainment is but this goes back to like it's because he spends all his time in this place he spends all his time in this seedy part of the of the city, in this, like I said, underbelly of the city where there are porno theaters. If you spend all your time there, and that's what you're exposed to, that's the bubble you live in, 
you think that's like going to the movies. And so Betsy, obviously in Civil Shepherd did a good job of portraying like this uncertainty about Travis. Like he really has to like kind of push her to agree to going on another date and he is he is kind of pushy about it, but he he has he's like he's kind of almost begging in a way sometimes. Yeah, because she there's something off about him, but she doesn't know that quite yet. But then the date, that's the real reveal of oh my god, this person is not someone that I want to spend any time with whatsoever. I think you know Travis, in my opinion, thinks that at this point, as a character, that a relationship is what he needs to complete him you know he says that line a person should try to be a person that's what they should do and there's there's a moment where he's looking at other couples and that's when he starts talking about betsy so i think he thinks a relationship is what will get him going in life and and finish his or complete him in a way and he also i think subconsciously sabotages his relationships with women like with betsy that he potentially has because of course you can make all the excuses for him of mental health problems or reassimilating, like back from war. But still, it's a porno theater. It says triple X on it. Like you got to know what a porno theater is. So I think subconsciously he makes himself alone, even though he wants a relationship. He yeah. thinks that's what he wants, but subconsciously he ruins any chance. So it's kind of like two. There's two personalities inside Travis, and one of them has more control than the other. And this leads into Travis's true fall into despair and disillusionment because he already was disillusioned and he already was uh disconnected from reality but the rejection of uh by betsy makes him really fall into this pit and this is what leads him to the darker moments and trajectory of the film story and one of the best shots in the film is yeah on the payphone with betsy yeah he's he's talking or leaving her another message and she's clearly trying to make excuses not to see him again and then Scorsese just tracks the camera to the empty hallway and he holds it there for like 15, 20 seconds. And it's just such a brilliant illustration of the lonesomeness, the uh, the rejection, the pathetic nature of Travis um, and illustrates the psychology of the character and the situation uh, in such a perfect way. It's just one one shot. You don't need uh, it. And it's so simple, too, but it's so brilliant. Um, but this is what leads Travis to. You know, the spiraling of despair and that great conversation with with the, with Wiz outside the cab stand poured red lights pouring on him. He's like, I got some bad ideas in my head. And he's clearly like dying inside. And uh, there's, there's so much building up inside of him and he's ready to burst. And then Wiz just says, hey, just go go get laid and, you know, take it easy. You're young. Um, but this is where Travis starts you know, preparing for something. He doesn't know what he's preparing for, but he's he's preparing for something. You know, he starts, he, he goes to that, by guns, he starts getting fit, he starts, you know, trying to get ready. But we, he doesn't even know what he's getting ready for. He's just getting ready for something. He wants to do something. He wants people to notice him. He wants to be seen. And there are a couple different trajectories he has. Iris is one area, but then Palantine is another area. So he's growing interest in Palantine being a way for him to be seen by the world. Yeah, and even before he starts building his arsenal and preparing, you can see him falling into madness. And he's by himself in his apartment multiple times, whether it's eating the cereal bread, sugar and brandy food, or I think there's a shot of him eating mayonnaise with a spoon. Ugh! 
Um, you would like and that. And then him just like holding, even, even eventually when he gets his guns, which is a, a great scene, he's just holding the hand, the giant Magnum 44 caliber, and he's just like got the TV on his foot. Just I swaying. love that because what, what's on screen? It's t- it's people dancing, dancing. And it's couples dancing and like being romantic and. He's he's like I never had that I'll never have that and then he's starting to follow Iris at this point he runs into her again yeah. and he has you know I love his journals listening to him because a lot of it is just incoherent ramblings of a madman mm-hmm. as well as some of it's kind of insightful into the psyche of him for sure like he has a great line in, in one of them at this point where he says loneliness has followed me my whole life everywhere there's no escape. And it's one of those things where it's like he's probably put himself in this hole subconsciously. Him, this lonely, empty life is he something does he's have, created. Yeah, he does have family in the Midwest that he's uh, not with anymore. And he, he eventually lies to later yeah, on saying exactly. he works for the government. Yeah, he, he doesn't want to even connect <laughs> to his family anymore. I also, in the in the when he's buying the guns, um, first of all, it's, I believe it was a real salesman. A gun salesman. Marty yeah. sees a few times for movies. And that shot where he has one of the pistols and he just aims it out the window and Marty tracks the camera with his hand almost POV and, he, and it stops where he's pointing it at two people outside in the distance aren't and, they nuns yeah I think they're I think they're nuns and it's just like holy shit what's this guy when I whenever you see this movie you're like what's he gonna do with these guns like oh my god and then he ends up not just buying one gun but he buys five guns and he creates this like crazy arsenal he's got this like mechanical quick draw on his wrist this gauntlet on his wrist he's he's getting ready to stab someone the knife taped to his cowboy yeah, boots <laughs> he's, he's pretending he's he's getting ready you know he's practicing quick draws he's practicing being ready for any kind of fight in any situation um and so he's preparing for a battle but what the battle is we don't know yet Tra- i don't think travis knows at this point until he begins obsessing over palatine can I can I pause and go back a little sure, bit before getting sure, to sure, Palantine because sure. that's an important thing that I want to talk about too. But going back to the guns and the scene where he's purchasing the guns, it's it's actually some of the most humor in the movies. Is this is this scene. I think I love when the guy says they use that for killing elephants, elephants in Africa. Only an asshole would walk around with that, <laughs> <laughs> and so he gives them the holster. But this scene has a great reference to Catholicism that Marty put in. We brought up earlier the. The woman of taxi driver wearing white being representative of angels or saints as well as another Catholic reference in this film is the burning of the flowers before he goes out to commit his deeds. He's about to. But also this gun scene is a moment in a great reference to Catholicism and mass and church. And so when Travis is going for the guns and they place them down onto that, like, that briefcase, I believe, there's purple velvet. What, is it velvet or... Yeah, the purple velvet right there that the guns are being placed on. Mm-hmm. And this is a metaphor and representation of like a priest preparing for mass, getting the tools ready on velvet for mass. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. <laughs> we had to go to Catholic school. <laughs> so he, he also does the, uh, he, he, he does the cross hatching in the bullets. Yes, yes. Yeah. That makes them spray and separate when they hit an impact. But also a great yeah. Catholic reference, which yeah. Marty puts in all of his movies. Absolutely. Now, let's get back into where he's, what directions he's heading in. He's got this arsenal. He's getting fit. He's holding his hands over fire, maybe a, a form of stigmata when we're talking about religions again. But also, where is he going to put this 
this where's he what's his outlet gonna be mm-hmm. he's developing this relationship with iris he's trying to get her out of her situation he wants to be here hero yeah as well, well as yeah Valentine. i love the um he has two interactions where he's like testing the waters of both worlds so um the first one obviously where he goes to sport and they have that great conversation. Sports like, hey, officer, <laughs> I'm just standing here. <laughs> oh, take, don't take me in. <laughs> oh, man. He, he, cowboy. He, he, oh, you're a real cowboy? Actually, to reference the cowboy, just to stay on that for a second. Uh-huh. So the tra- the character and the design of Travis Bickle was heavily inspired by The Searchers, the John Ford mm-hmm. film. So Travis represents Ethan Edwards in that film played by John Wayne. Hence the red. Dresses like a cowboy, called a cowboy multiple times. He wears, wears cowboy, cowboy boots. boots. Yeah. His taxi, you could say, is his horse. He's hell-bent on rescuing women, obviously with Iris at the end of the film. Sports in this film played by Harvey Cartel. He wears indigenous clothing Mm -hmm. he's often wearing native american or indigenous clothing and kind Mm -hmm. of hairstyles and also travis's mohawk haircut is a reference to indigenous tribes later on well it's not a reference to tribes i read that it was a reference from someone who was a special ops and talking advising scorsese and he said that um when they were like uh in i think vietnam and there were certain crews, there would be guys, and if they had a mohawk, it meant that they were about to get sent on a on a mission. And so there was like, people, when, when you saw a guy with a mohawk, it meant they were ready to kill. And like the next day, they were being sent on a very dangerous mission. So it was, it was a way of soldiers preparing for the uh, an imminent uh, mayhem they were about to put onto people. And so I, that's what I read where they got the Mohawk gotcha. list from. It's probably both because I believe both, it's yeah. a hairstyle for a specific type of Iroquois tribe. I think, yeah, I think that's correct too. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's um, interesting. Yeah, but it's it's yeah, it's really fascinating because he is prepared for to to carry out bloodshed in that moment when he has the Mohawk. And the Palatine yeah. thing, just to stop you yeah, for a sure. sec, because we're gonna get into that, is really interesting because it goes back to the Travis being a walking contradiction. Knows nothing about politics, but while he's trying to court Betsy, even after her rejection. He's got a poster of Palantine right next to his desk yeah. in his in his apartment, as well as that cab scene where he as has a fair into actually Palantine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really fascinating scene because Travis reveals a lot of his psyche to the audience for the first time, truly not in a diary form or not by our perception of his actions, but he says a lot of things that he's really being honest about finally because he has Palantine in the back. He lies to Palantine. He says, I'm voting for you. I'm a huge fan. I tell everybody mm-hmm. who comes in here, vote for Charles Palantine. But the way he talks about cleaning up the city, radical change, those are things that, in the, the tone of, of Travis in the scene, he's angry, sick of it. He's a man that sounds dangerous. It's the first time I've really heard him speak like that, really. And he actually makes a connection with Palantine, who is uh, listening intently. And you can see one of his uh, advisors like looks at Palantine like, wait, are you really listening to this guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, always get a ki- I always get a kick out of that. But what's ironic is, the, again, with the contradiction is he plan, he eventually plans to assassinate Palantine in public even though he doesn't even know what his politics are. He's only doing it because he wants something to, to do. And it's you could argue it's revenge against uh, uh, Betsy. Absolutely, both of those things. For her rejection. But also to just be seen, I think, as well. You know, and to, I think it's it's re- also revenge against Betsy plus destroying the man that controls in his in Travis's perspective. The, the man her she world, admires, her world, yeah. her admiration yeah. is Palantine taking that away from her. Absolutely, yeah. that's my perception of Travis. That's, that's a great that's a great point as well, one hundred percent. And I like the the first um, 
the first Palantine scene when they're setting up for the rally and he goes up to the Secret Service agent and then he has this awkward conversation with him and the agents, the Secret Service guys are like, this guy's fucking crazy. <laughs> and then he, uh, he's like, let me take down your uh, information and we can send you the, those details. And then Travis wisely gives him the wrong name and address. Um, but the zip code is... Uh, Area code six numbers. Six numbers. <laughs> I was thinking of my phone number. Um, but it's really interesting though for him to even spark a conversation with the agent, with the bodyguard. Um, and I, I find that it's such a fascinating um, situation. Also, at this point, he has cut his hair. At this stage in the film, his hair is much shorter. It's not the obviously not the mohawk yet, but it is cut down by several inches. And this is a wig. Uh, uh, De Niro never cut his hair for the film yet. He wore a wig for this and a wig for the Mohawk because just like any film, they film scenes out of order. So he can't cut his hair in case they need to film a scene from the first act of the film later in the production. So he's wearing a wig, although I think it looks really good. And the Mohawk is actually in like a big museum. It's such a famous piece of hair for, for film history. Um, but I, I love that scene. It's really interesting why Travis would even speak to himself because he is kind of compromising himself in a way by having this awkward conversation with an agent and he knows he's being suspicious he knows he's being odd and in a way he's kind of like looking for attention from the bodyguard i think he's a subconscious self-sabotager mm -hmm. he's a saboteur of his own actions and what he wants because obviously he's wearing the same outfit that yeah. he's wearing when he tries to do the assassination after he gets the mohawk and they recognize him immediately in the crowd which is what ruins his assassination attempt so it's almost like he he wants to carry out the assassination but he also subconsciously doesn't want to do it he's he sabotages what he wants in this film constantly and it's it's kind of odd and it makes you wonder why is he talking to this guy and it's gotta be it really makes no sense it's like he doesn't yeah. want to carry it out mm -hmm. but then eventually same day same night i gotta get i i need my outlet i have to kill he's at this point where he has to kill well no, let's go to the real attempt though Okay, yeah, we'll go back. Yeah, the real attempt. Well, but also there's another scene with Betsy where he berates her in the headquarters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's been ignoring his calls. I forgot to mention that, and he does the kung fu stance. That's, Anthony and I have been doing the kung fu stance. Like, get your hands off me! Get your, get your hands off me! We've been doing that for years. <laughs> it's like a Bruce Lee stance. Yeah. It makes no sense. We've been we, There's like four references in this movie that are almost daily in the house. <laughs> for for over a decade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, but... um. I think that's just, that's one of the scariest scenes in the film is when he uh, when he basically rushes into the headquarters and and uh, berates Betsy and it's scary but it shows how unhinged she is and how how much anger and rage she has inside of him and how right Betsy was by not wanting to do have anything to do with him um, and what he says to her is you're just like the yeah, rest of them you're gonna be alone you're gonna die just like you're like all yeah, of them he says you're gonna die alone like it showed like how fucked up he was. Um, red flag alert <laughs> ultimate but I think it, I think it's one of the scariest scenes because it shows how scary of a person Travis Bickle is and how much of a danger he is to, to society he really is a danger to people he's a danger to the public and if he's once he's set off like everybody's at risk that's in his in his fucking area you know what I mean that's I think one of the most underrated scenes of the movie there's also a scene that we gotta get to that we forgot about that's integral to the character of Travis, as he's building his arsenal, as he's training, he kills a guy in a convenience store that's robbing the oh, right. owner. Yeah. So he's going into the convenience store that he go probably goes into every night, knows the guy by name, the owner, and then someone comes in to rob it, and then Travis pops him in the head. You know, yeah. this is something he's, I guess, been preparing for. Who knows? And it's really dark, 
and the psyche involved is is pretty messed up. I, he says something like, "I don't know what to do with this gun." I think that was an improvised line, something like that. And it's pretty intense, and it feels so real and visceral, especially how Scorsese holds on the clerk, the the convenience store owner, as he keeps hitting the man yeah. with the with the crowbar over and over again. It's really one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in a movie to this date. And it shows you that Travis is prepared to kill. Mm-hmm. And he's now he's killed. I'm sure we can all assume that he's killed in Vietnam. Yeah. But now to finally kill back home, this is bad news for the city because now he's gotten a taste. It's something that, you the know, first he's, one's prepared. Hard. Yeah, yeah. he's prepared to do it now. Yeah. And um, I would say 100% without a doubt, this is not the first time Travis has killed or shot somebody. And I think you're right when he was in... in in the war, I think he killed people for sure. Um, here's a man who would not take it anymore. Yeah. Who is a man? Here's a man who stood up to the scum. Ironically, he is part of that. Oh, absolutely. Contradiction. And then when the day comes for the assassination attempt, and man, the directing of this moment where we see it's the rally, there's a ton of people there, um, there's a stage, and then what, what does Scorsese cut to? He cuts to Travis, but it, it, we cut to his jacket. And then we just see, we know it's Travis, just from the jacket and the pins there. And then he tracks the camera up, and we see the reveal of Travis in his new haircut, the mohawk. It's such a brilliant camera move. And it's just so impactful when you see, holy shit, this guy has transformed himself into a monster. Then that's, I think, one of the points of the transformation of becoming a less human version of himself. Yeah, and then he tries to kill Palantine, but it does not go according to plan because they recognize him. He's wearing the same exact outfit, mm-hmm. and he's rushing forward, and they get And Palantine also they're reaching out. into his coat. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a move they look for. So he, And then he runs away, and then eventually he does something terrible that night as well. But let's track back a little bit, and I love before the sequence, he's there's a voiceover. That I believe this is also where he destroys his TV, and he's talking... He's, writing a uh, basically a suicide note, a letter mm-hmm. basically to his parents, like a goodbye note to them, um, where he basically lies to them about saying he works for the government. I have a girlfriend. Her name's Betsy. I can't tell you much besides that, but <laughs> this is yeah, it. It's yeah. pretty crazy. So he's he's creating so many lies about who he is. Also, huh, we skipped two things I want to get to. There's an amazing edit in this film um, earlier, just a little bit earlier. And so it's from that famous shot of him in the theater, and he's got his fingers over his face and the shadow from his fingers, and he just, he just keeps going up and down with his finger, covering his eyes. And um, it's a great, like, 20-second shot that Scorsese just slowly pushes in on him. And, it's, and then what's he, what he does with his hand is he makes a gun, and he points it in front of him. He just points it ahead. And then Scorsese cuts to a poster of Palatine. So the foreshadow, it's just genius to cut from him pointing his finger like a gun to a poster of Palantine in his room. And that's just telling the audience what his, his tensions are right there, just through an edit. It's so good. Pretty brilliant stuff. But speaking of Marty, we forgot about his scene. Yeah. And he is really we, good we in this scene. We referenced it, but yeah. Yeah, you referenced Yeah, um, but he's, he's really excellent in the scene. His nervous energy works for the character really well. He's a very fast talker. He's uh, He has an uppity kind of... Energy. He has like this nervous energy. Talks a, a, mi- a million miles a second. It, it, it's but it hands itself to the character of someone who's um, unhinged as well. Um, but in a way, like it's he's 
he's kind of portrayed as worse than Travis. You know what I mean? Like Travis like pities him. Travis looks. Travis is looking like this guy like he's a monster, even though Travis himself becomes a monster. It's really interesting to see that Travis isn't the only one who's a terrible human being. Travis isn't the only one in the city who wants to kill others. Um, and Travis isn't the only one who sees, when he sees other people, he sees scum. And he sees people not worth, um, that who shouldn't be alive. You know what I mean? And Scorsese famously filled in because the actor, who was another filmmaker, he actually had a problem on the set of his movie at the same time. And so he had to stay on set for his film and so Scorsese at the last minute had to fill in the spot. But I think he did a phenomenal job in the scene. And it's also because the character is directing Travis, it really worked because he's a director. And so like it makes it makes sense in the relationship of he's like directing Travis. He's like, don't 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 look, don't answer that. You don't have to answer anything. He said, look up, look up there. You see there? See there? See up there? So in a way, the character is directing Travis like Scorsese would direct. Um, De Niro, but also De Niro was like directing Marty in the scene as well, like oh, yeah? trying to give him tips on like make, make me look up at that window, like yeah. make me do it. Makes sense. So yeah. Obviously, they're very collaborative and best mm-hmm. buds for life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's really interesting. Also, before the Palantine attempt, he leaves a cash cash in a note for Iris because he thinks he's gonna die. Oh, the oh, there's also another thing. Sorry. Oh, there's plenty. The the cash reminded me of the twenty dollar bill. Mm-hmm. So the twenty dollar bill that Sport throws in his cab, the crushed up one, yeah, yeah, crushed up one. When he takes Iris away, he says, "Forget about this cabbie. Don't worry about this." Travis never spends that, and uh, he, there's several situations where he pulls out his money and he looks at it. And in the cab stand, when he when he's paying one of the other guys back, he's like, "The guy's like, you got my five And Travis opens his money and he's got a bunch of ones. And he has that crumbled twenty. He doesn't give him that twenty. He gives him a couple of ones. And there's another instance where he could pay. With the 20, but he doesn't. But he finally gives the 20 to Sport. When he's... Not Sport, to the other... To the Math, other I mean, um, yeah, the guy in the hallway. Yeah, the guy in the hallway. And he... This is for you. This is for you. It's that same 20 that he wasn't willing to spend um, in any, situa- any other situation until that situation. And that's when he goes to actually see Iris for the first yeah, time. And then they exactly. agree to have breakfast the next morning. <laughs> he's like, what time wake up? Uh, 1 o'clock. I wake up at 1 o'clock. He's like, oh, man, I don't know. I guess. Why do or are you not? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing, Travis? <laughs> and then, okay, and Joey's fantastic in this movie. But then, you know, Valentine fail, failed assassination attempt. He gets away. Mm-hmm. Now what's he do? He goes straight to sport. Goes straight to Matthew. And shoots him right in the stomach. He's got. He's got. He has to kill in a way. He has to kill. He needs. He needs yeah. to get his fix. Basically, he's, yeah. he set his mind like everything's led to this day. Yeah. I thought I was gonna die killing Palantine. That didn't go according to plan. So now I'm just gonna go kill everyone that is controlling Iris's life. Maybe mm-hmm. his plan was to do both. No, I think his plan was just Palantine. It's possible. And then it was a change of plans. Yeah, that's what I think yeah. too. But maybe, maybe, maybe he was planning to do both if he somehow escaped Palantine's. I think he. I think his plan. Ultimately, but he was giving her the cash. Never exactly. Mind. Yeah, like he was expecting um, her to go home um, because he said, "I'm. Uh, you're not. You're not going to see me anymore." So he was expecting to kill Palantine and then probably kill himself in that yeah. moment. And we talked about this scene earlier. How how incredibly authentic and real and visceral it is. How sloppy it is. But also the killing of Sport is great because it's a it's a two minute long take of them talking, and then he kills him. And Scorsese never cuts to a different shot; he never edits away. It's just that one take. And even after shooting him, he goes down the block and he sits down on a on a porch. He doesn't uh, kill him yet. No, he doesn't. No, he shoots, shoots him. him sorry, shoots him in the stomach, and then he sits down on the porch and he just sits there. And Scorsese just holds it for like five seconds. and He's just sitting there, 
And I'm just like, oh my god, this seems so realistic that someone would do it that way. Yeah, and then he goes back in the hallway, shoots the guy's hand off, Sport comes back, shoots him in the neck, Travis kills both men, and then goes up into the apartment. Well, the mafiosa comes out. Yeah. So he kills Sport with three more bullets at close point-blank point, point blank range, and then um, he goes up the steps as the guy is hitting him, and then he shoots that the guy one more time, and then the mafiosa comes out from the hallway from Iris's room. Um, and by the way, FYI, like it's a mobster, and so in this before this, what happens is we see the mafiosa talk to Sport. He's like, "Is Iris in her room?" Yeah, Iris is in there. But Sport also pays him, so he's he's a part of the mafia, getting his um, basically his rent for the month from this business. You know what I mean? So that's who that guy is. He's collecting his his monthly mafia payment from a business that he protects in the city. So Sport pays him what he owes him. And then he's probably getting a, a, a free session with, with Iris. That's what I would assume um, is why he's going to Iris. And so this guy is a mafia, a member of the mafia. He shoots Travis in the arm. And then we have the rest of the confrontation leading into Iris's room where he blows the guy's fucking head off. It's incredible. And then, you know, it's incredibly telling that Travis, now that he's killed, yeah. can kill himself. Now he's going to do it. He's saved her. Yeah, and he's going to. But yeah. he has no bullets left in any of his weapons. He's used every bullet. And then I love the shot of him, the overhead shot. But we, we get the shot of the finger gun. Slow motion. Shooting himself in the head yep. with his finger. But then the overhead slow motion reveal of the police officers at the doorway. It's so terrific. And obviously, Bernard Herrmann's score, it's the crescendos, everything. It's, the harp. It's, it's yeah. Spectacular. And you clearly, Tarantino loves Scorsese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scorsese, in a lot of ways, um, created this shot. Not the overhead shot, but how it tracks across a room into different rooms and halls of a space. It's really incredible. Yeah. So, in, in a lot of ways, um, he helped invent this kind of style. He, also, he did a lot of things that were technically um, never done before. Yeah. And I mean, the end of the film, he, a lot of people could perceive it as, as Travis being a hero. I mean, in a way, he saved Iris. He got her home, and you know, he's she's home happy. And now the their, her parents send him the letter that they're gonna do the everything they can to make her happy and feel at home as she's adjusting back at school. And he did save her. He's he's a hero in the newspaper and the clippings. Hero cabby driver saves twelve year old prostitute from pimps, mafiosa. Mafiosa. Yeah. It, it, and. But the, but that's the surface. But at the end of the day, Travis is a killer, and he was gonna kill innocent people. Ended up killing people who happened to not be happen, innocent, who happened to be criminals, yes. but still killed yeah. people. In no way is he a hero, um, I would say, because uh, if things had worked out earlier in the day, he would have been a, a the assassin of the president to possible president to be. Um, and who knows? He probably could have killed other people in that in that public area. You know what I mean? And so, but then just because of a certain turn of events, and that didn't work out, so then he just goes to the next people to kill. They happen to be criminals. They happen to be bad people. And so he's put up as a as a hero in the press and in the media. However, Scorsese shows the true ending of him not being a hero, and that he will do this again. He's gonna get set off again. It's not like he's cured. It's not like he's healed after this event. It's not like saving Iris. He's like, I'm a changed man. I'm never. I'm gonna be straight and narrow. I'll never hurt or look at the world in a bad way ever again. This is just one of many events, and he's gonna do this again 
and it probably will be innocent people next time he has this um, kind of an outburst uh, and people might not be so lucky um, and it's revealed at the end of the film after he drops off Betsy do you can you think of what happens that could hint at this well, it ends with shots of the lights mm-hmm. in the city. Um, what's the what's the ending shot? I can't remember. So it's not just one shot; it's a quick edit. Um, Scorsese, um, Travis is in his car, and he hears a sound he doesn't like, and he adjusts the rearview mirror, and he like kind of glares at the mirror. And Scorsese f- sped up the footage and zoomed in at the same time, and then he did like a quick couple of edits of sped footage. It's basically showing that um, he's not fixed and he's going to do this again. Something's going to set him off again. And then that's the real ending of the movie, that he's not. He's still the same person he was before um, the assassination attempt. Yeah, because you could say if he was, you could say, quote-unquote, cured, then he would have accepted Betsy's proposal, basically, nonverbal proposal. Yeah, he would have been open to, yeah, to, to connection. Yeah. Schrader also says this is how he pr- intended it to be. Um, he wrote that one of the main inspirations for Travis Bickle was a real person named Sarah Jane Moore who briefly became a celebrity after she tried to kill President Gerald Ford and she was on the cover of magazines and stuff and people were like um, kind of turned into a, a famous person for a little bit he also said that Travis is not cured after the shootout and next time he's not going to be a hero I mean you can only imagine that if it didn't work out at, with the pimps, what what would happen next? What would his outlet been? Mm-hmm. Just an innocent person probably on the street. Yeah. That he didn't like the first person he saw he didn't like. That he would label in his mind scum. Yeah. So I think um, the the movie's real ending is that it's this is going to happen again, and it's probably going to be innocent people next time. Yeah. It's just ironic that he's presented as a hero by the, yeah. by the press in that's, the world. Uh, yeah, it's the irony of people the ending. Think he's I think. a hero that, yeah. like, I went in there to save her. It's No, you no. went in there just to kill. He did it, yeah, he did it just for himself to do it. Yeah. But also, something about Iris. Wanting to, wanting to help Iris was part of that. Yeah. Otherwise, he would have killed Iris, too. He's trying to get her out of there, but that's a good point. That's, yeah. I don't, yeah, he's definitely not cured. No way, Jose. Woo! Nope. What a movie. Oh, man. This is the, this is the juice, man. This is the movie. <laughs> this is the movie. But, man, that, that ending shootout, man, it's just amazing. It's amazing. You know, I've seen some really cool shootouts in the last couple of years, but, like, I watched this again the other night, and I was like, dude, it's fucking amazing. It's incredible. Nothing like it. Got anything else on Taxi Driver? Um, We said all of my, Oh, did you see who Iris' parents were? No, I don't think I recognize There's a photo of them in the newspaper. Know, yeah. it's, it's Martin Scorsese's parents. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of their early cameos. Oh, it's so good. They are Iris's parents in the in the newspaper article about them. This was the film. It was also the last uh, time the classic Columbia Pictures logo was used um, in her classic painted matte-painted appearance. After this, they went with a new version of it for Columbia Pictures. Uh, Martin Scorsese stated that when he filmed his cameo in the back seat of the taxi cab, he had to sit on a blanket to be able to see over the front seat due to being five feet three inches tall. <laughs> He's a little guy, <laughs> a little dude. <laughs> I love that. Oh, man, I love this movie. Such a such an iconic movie. Holy crap. They don't make them like this anymore. No way, man. So ahead of its time. No way. 
So ahead of its time. There's one that's been um, reminiscent of Taxi Driver made by Lynn Ramsey called You're Never Really Here. Yeah, I would, yeah, I'm, that's up there. That was um, similar. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. May, it reminded me of Taxi Driver a lot. Yeah. Everyone always points to Joker, but yeah, that's a good example. I think, of that. I think that's a better example that's than a good Joker. Point. Yeah. That's a good point. Because Joker is also very much tied to the king of comedy. Yeah, and it, yeah. in superheroes. Yeah. Wait, how, in what way? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, if you've never seen You're Never Really There, highly recommend checking it out. It's an excellent movie. Joaquin is awesome in it. Yeah. He'll never look at hammers the same way again, <laughs> just like as in Drive. <laughs> he plays, yeah, he plays like this. I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. it's great. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a Prime movie, so... Definitely, I highly recommend checking it out. Lynn Ramsey never gets the attention she deserves Excellent. as a director. It's got a great score, too. The music's terrific. Johnny part. Greenwood. Yeah. All right, that wraps our episode on Taxi Driver, something we've been saving for so long. We covered it like our sixth episode. We did Taxi Driver versus Joker, Loner Cinema, but we never really did a, a full breakdown of Taxi Driver until now. We've been saving it for quite a while because it's a special movie, special episode. Wanted to wait until we had as big a following as possible to like really share it with the masses, but really hope you enjoyed this breakdown and analysis of Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. See you next time, everyone. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keene, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy-Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.